turn to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. Any, uh, any questions from the end of Joel 2 that we've looked at last week? Spent kind of a while on that. Any other questions or thoughts on that? So basically the summary of the end of Joel 2 would be that Peter quotes it in Acts 2 to, I think, point out the beginning of the last days. And Joel 1 and 2 up to verse 27 is uh, primarily talking about the events near at hand, the locust plague, anticipated further locust plagues, further judgments if they fail to repent but then an anticipation of a day of visions and prophecy of people calling on the name of the Lord and a, an emphasis on the idea that that is the proper response to the things that Joel is saying. So then we come to Joel chapter 3. Can someone read for us verses 1 through 8, please? Verses 1 through 8, Joel 3, 1 through 8. Evan? All right, any thoughts on these verses initially here? What does God say he's going to do according to verse 1? Okay, so restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, what else? Not necessarily just in verse 1, but what else do we see? There's a restoration of Judah and Jerusalem, and there is what for others? Yeah, judgment for various nations. Okay? On what basis is God judging the nations? Okay, so they've scattered the people, verse 2, they've divided up the land, 
And then in verse 3 where it's casting lots for my people, there's this, this attitude of treating them as what? Yeah, and, you know, just completely devaluing their lives, right? Selling people as slaves so that they can have wine, so that they can get drunk, for example. Okay? Or selling another as a slave in order to obtain physical pleasure in a transaction kind of way. So, uh, Judah and Jerusalem are going to be restored. The nations are going to be judged. God basically says, I'm going to gather them and I'm going to judge them, and it's on the basis of what they have done toward my people. What do we see in verse 4? Okay, but like what action is God, what is God saying, like scenario is he laying out in verse 4? What do they think that they're doing, what does God say is going to happen instead, like that kind of idea. Right? Okay, and what is God saying? Okay, and he's going to in turn repay them with judgment, right? Okay. And yes, he is, he is mocking them. What are you to me? It's the kind of the feel of Psalm 2, I think it is, where he who sits in heaven laughs at the schemes of men, right? So then he lists further their actions. Since you have done what? Verses 5 and 6. Okay. What else? Do, what do they do with the people? So they stole the property. Yeah, basically deported them into other places, took them far away, sold them as slaves. And what does God say is going to happen in verse 7? It says he's going to arouse them. Who's the them? His people, right? And then again, there's this idea of repaying. Uh, verse 8, what does he say is going to happen to their offspring? Yeah. Now, I think there are several questions that probably arise in our minds when we read a passage like this. What are some of the questions that come to mind when you look at this? Is it right for God to do exactly as they did if it was wrong for them to do it that way? Okay. Any other questions? We need to try to answer that one a little bit, but any other questions come to mind? Maybe a selfish question. What does that have to do with me? Okay. Any other questions? 
talking more to the United Nations and to the nations that have bought and sold them and all of these things, like how are they going to hear this prophecy? Okay, that's a good question as well. Anything else? Yeah, when is it? So, particularly from verse 1, in those days and at that time, what day is what time? All right, let's start with the one of uh, that, that Devin mentioned, because we kind of started at the, be at the end and went back to the beginning of the chapter. What justifies God doing similar things to the nations that they have done to the people of Israel? And if we are hesitant to ask this question, there are passages where God basically lays out his case for why he has done a thing and says something along the lines of, so that I'll be vindicating your eyes. Like, I don't have to give you an answer, but here's the answer that I've given you. So there is biblical warrant for thinking about this. It's not, it's not disregarding God's authority to seek to understand his purpose to some extent. How is God justified in what he's doing here? Okay. What do you mean? Well, I guess if the, if the ultimate um, motive is to glorify God. Okay. Okay. Whereas when people did it, they had no desire, no inclination to do those things for that reason. Okay. Any other thoughts along those lines? So the, perhaps the reason that God is doing it is different from the reason that they were doing it? I think there's a, still a part of us that some of it has to do with our modern sensibilities, and some of it, I think, is not entirely cultural, that the idea of saying this group of people was bought and sold in property, and then this group of people was bought and sold in property as property, uh, and God seems to endorse it, there's, there's something about that that we say, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, Rob. Could it be something like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of a thing? Okay. Yeah, so I think if we ignore that word recompense that comes up a bunch of times in the chapter, that's probably going to cause us to miss some of the point of what God's saying. If, um, I mean, this is perhaps not the best illustration, but if somebody came up and slapped you in the face and you went and got a baseball bat and beat him within an inch of his life, is that an appropriate or a corresponding not saying that's right or wrong to do that. I'm just saying, is that an appropriate or a, a parallel kind of response? I think we'd say no. But to the extent that this people has done to God's people this thing, if all the things about sowing and reaping in the Bible and 
and some of the things that seem to be built in the law, there is a corresponding punishment that correlates to the, the crime. I think that's an element that we should not ignore. Okay? Other thoughts? Norma? Okay, reaping and sowing, which I think, so reaping and sowing, eye for an eye, like those kind of things kind of go hand in hand to some extent. Bob and then Evan? So in Romans, we see the wages of sin is death. Okay. In this case, the wages of their sin is a repayment of their sin. So God is just in that. I guess it's similar to the eye for an eye type deal. Um, but also, God created them. Yeah. He has the right. Yeah, but that's not an arbitrary thing, and, I, and you're not saying that, but I think we've got to keep that in mind as well. Evan? I would have let you give the answer first. Bob had his hand up first, so I wasn't trying to play favorites here. So. <laughs> Next time you can give the answer first. Uh, Louise, did you have something? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe something along the lines of this idea that God doesn't have to necessarily always use miracles. He can use normal, everyday activities that still show that He's God and sovereign, something along those lines. Any other thoughts on the question of God's justice in what's happening here, particularly at the end of the section? Bruce? What do we define those nations? What are they? Well, the ones that are listed here are Tyre and Sidon, Philistia. Um, these are nations that, so Tyre and Sidon would be north and slightly west. Philistia would have been south and a little bit east. So these were nations that tended to attack the Israelites. And they tended to sort of have these incursions or, I mean, the Philistines had fortified cities, but not a ton. I want to say there were five of them. Uh, but there was a sense in which they tended to be, I think, maybe raiders more than these huge armies. 
And so, which is an interesting feature in and of itself, so are the Sabaeans at the end of verse 8, which we'll look at something about that in just a moment. So the nations, at the very least, is Tyronside and Philistia, nations immediately surrounding. It could include more nations. At the end of the chapter, we see mention of Egypt and a few others. Um, but it is interesting that it does not mention Assyria or Babylon here. Um, so... Yeah, that's, uh, so even if we're just talking about the nations right around Israel, that's still quite a few of them. Yes, you say something. I guess it's along the same lines, just thinking uh, his justness requires an element of judgment and, um, you know, whether in this life or the next. Yes, it's easy to say we know that if he's doing it, it's right. At the same time, that repayment is further evidence of his justness, of his righteousness. Okay. Uh, so I think, I think we've come pretty close to an answer about God being just in light of these things, in that... He's doing it with the right motives. He is doing it in a corresponding repayment, not an excessive one. Uh, Romans 12 comes to mind where it says that vengeance is God's, not ours. And I think a big part of the reason for that is our concept of vengeance tends to be, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a comic book character called The Punisher. Basically, his idea is the mafia, whoever kills his family, so he goes and wipes out, like, I don't know, 100 people. That's our concept of vengeance, right? It's not justice, it's an attempt at satisfaction. Whereas God's justice is, it goes as far as it needs to and it stops. It's not excessive. It is also sort of like the eye for an eye idea, the punishment fits the crime in the sense that here are marauders that come in and raid and take people away. God sends marauders to raid and take people away. It's not they came in and took people captive and God sends an earthquake and wipes out everybody in their entire land. Isn't there also a, a sense of possible redemption in that judgment as well? Okay. I mean, just thinking about Nineveh and how God responded to different Gentile nations throughout either the threat of judgment or the act of judgment did lead to repentance in a number of cases. Yes, I think we definitely see that in other passages. I don't think we see it specifically here. I think the emphasis is almost exclusively on judgment. Although, the rest of the Bible, I think, would encourage us to say there is redemption even for those who have gone against God's people in this way. Uh, we'll come back to the what of this has to do with me in a moment because I think that's more of a, like, at the end one. Um, what was the third one, someone said? The last one was, when does it happen? But there was a third one about... Oh, I think I had said, <clears throat> where did... Like, is this something that those nations are even going to see? It seems like... How did they hear about the prophecy? And exp yes. 
So, um, some of this ties into the function of the people of Israel versus their actual, the way they lived. God intended for the people of Israel to sort of be this light to the nations, and in reality, they tended not to be that. So they were more like a flashlight that the battery is running out on, right? And so uh, that, I think, affects it. There are definitely interactions, uh, studying 2 Peter 2 and looking at the story of Balaam, there is interaction between God's prophets and pagan nations. So sometimes God would actually send the prophet over, whether he did that with Joel in the context and then the, this was recorded for the Israelites, but he also went and proclaimed it to those nations. We don't know because there's no biblical record of it. But it is indeed quite possible that God actually sent the prophet to say these things to these nations, or that in the course of trade and interaction with the people of Israel, they heard the, the prophecy. Or if they didn't hear it, then I think the corresponding would be basically like today. God's told us to take the gospel to people. If we don't do it, people may not hear, but that's ultimately on us, not on them, although God's judgment still falls on them. So, I mean, that would be my kind of start toward an answer. Norma? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. God, God doesn't forsake his people despite their unfaithfulness, but I think the thing that we're trying to figure out is how does someone who's a Philistine hear the message of Joel if he doesn't live in Israel? And so the answer would be either God sent Joel to tell it to the Philistines, they heard it from their conversations with people in Israel, or they didn't hear it at all and Israel should have warned them and didn't, and that was their responsibility. I think would kind of be probably the three main possibilities that come to mind at the moment. Um, I think we had the question of when. Was there a fourth question before we got to the when question? I can't remember. I think the next one was sort of when does this happen, how does it tie in? So, a um, couple of possibilities. One possibility is that because he's talking about nations that were known nations 800 years before Christ who uh, didn't really exist as nations in later times, then this is something that God intends to be fulfilled um, in the near future from the perspective of Joel. So that would be one possibility. Another possibility would be that God is referring to nations like those nations, so nations like Tyreside and Philistia, or the people who are then dwelling in those regions, uh, something like this. Um, Philistia is now, I think, primarily Jordan, if I remember the geography correctly. God knows when he's talking to Joel that it's going to be that in our day. Uh, if those people are to attack Israel in the same way that the generations hundreds of years before did, God can judge them in a corresponding way. Is that exactly what's going on? I'm not saying that it is or isn't. I'm just saying since God knows who's going to live there down the road and who lived there 2,000 years ago, God could be referring to the geographical region and people with the same character as those nations. That 
explanation, I think, is possible because God knows all of these things and because um, the people of Israel have had a similar response to God for generations. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that the nation surrounding Israel would have a similar response to Israel and God's people for generations. In fact, we kind of see that borne out in history. The thing that I'm hesitant about an explanation of like that is it seems to blunt the force of the urgency. If, if God goes and talks to nations, like let's say Joel goes down to Philistia, and he's like, hey, this is going to happen. 2,500 years from now, God is going to punish all the people here who are doing all these things in a bad way. They're like, Bob's question, what does this have to do with me? So, um, I think it would be, so there's the, it's going to get fulfilled right away, it's going to get fulfilled way down the road, or there's perhaps an in-between that would say, there are elements of this that are warnings for the immediate future, interspersed with glimpses of what's going to happen centuries later. I lean toward that one just because I think we see something corresponding in Isaiah 7 and 8. So if we think back to our study of Isaiah 7 and 8, here's a guy who's really not following God at all. Uh, it's not Manasseh. What's that? No, remember it was, uh, it was Uzziah and those, those four kings, right? In Isaiah 7 and 8. Let's just turn there and then we can see what it's saying. We won't spend ridiculously long on this. The rest of the chapter kind of is along the same lines as these. Uh, Isaiah 7, days of Ahaz. So it's Ahaz. Raiders are coming in and terrorizing Judah and Jerusalem. Um, Ahaz is really disturbed about um, Rezin and Ramalia. And then, um, well, son of Ramalia, right? So there's the king of Israel and the king of Syria. And the king of Jerusalem, Ahaz, is worried about the king of Israel and the king of Syria, both these nations to the north of him who are attacking him. One from his own people, one from enemies that have been enemies the whole time. So God says, I'm going to give you a sign so that you know that things will be okay. Well, not okay, that I will deliver you and help you and all of that. Uh... His response is, oh, I don't want to test God. I don't, I don't need a sign. I'm good. This is the king who's going around and setting up all these pagan altars at the same time he's professing to follow the true God. Uh, the response of God is, I am going to give you a sign that you is, is unmistakable. Then in chapter 8, we have this description of a son being born within the time frame that's described, and then the two kings are defeated. So here's what I think is going on in Isaiah 8. Isaiah has a son who is the fulfillment of that part of the prophecy within the two years, such that Ahaz has no basis for questioning God, and he sees the foolishness of rejecting God's power and disbelieving God's word. Because God said, before this child is old enough, to do this and that, the two kings whom you're, who, 
who are uh, terrorizing you will be done away with. And before Isaiah's son is two years old, these two kings are defeated because Assyria takes over Syria and starts to attack northern Israel and break their power. So, there's also the part in Isaiah 7.14 that I think Matthew quotes and uses and applies to Christ because that part of it is an anticipating there is a much greater sign coming, but it's not a near and far fulfillment of the same thing. It's elements of the prophet's message. Some of it are being fulfilled right then, and some of it's being fulfilled centuries later. So the difference is you can have someone... Um, they're not saying two things. They're not saying there's this woman who's going to be with a child, and it is both Isaiah's son and Jesus, same word, same phrase, fulfilled in both events. It is Isaiah's son is the sign that is immediately there for Ahaz. That's the part about the two years and all that sort of thing. And the part about the sign that's greater than the heavens above and the earth below, that's what we see in Matthew 1 with the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Almost done, Norma, sorry. If, if there is the same kind of thing going on in Joel 3, then there are elements of Joel 3 that are immediate judgment on Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, but also an anticipation by that judgment of the great day of judgment in the end of all things. Norma? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. How could he be a king at seven, or what do you mean? I'm sorry. Okay. He did. There's two possibilities. One is there is some discussion of whether the Hebrew is 7 or 17, as in was there almost like a typo when the scribes were copying it? Because in one place I think it says 17, in one place I think it says 7. I'm, I'm going off memory here, but I think that's the case. That's one possibility. The other possibility, and this would happen in various places, is if you have someone where the previous king dies and the next one's not old enough to rule, someone else does it for a while until they take over. So like the regent kind of idea. Right. Yeah. So one of those two things, I think. Yeah, or at least older than six or seven, right? <laughs> yeah. Six or seven-year-old king is not going to be a great king. Bob, you going to say something? Oh, okay. All right, so here's my basic answer on the when. I don't necessarily want to break it up verse by verse, but I would say there's elements of Joel's message that are immediately for the people of his day, and there's parts of it that point to way down the road, things that haven't even happened yet from our perspective. All right, let's get to the rest of the chapter, and then we'll answer the, what does this have to do with us? Uh, someone read for us 9 to 17, please. Joel 3, 9 through 17. Ruth, you had your hand up earlier. Do you want to read that? 9 through 17? Thanks. <coughs> Proclaim this among nations. Prepare war. 
Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning crooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle where the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valleys of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge refuge for his people and in a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Uh, someone want to read 18 through 21 since we're getting close to the end of the section. 18 to 21, who wants to read that for us? Norma, go ahead. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down in the void, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness, for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land, in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord delights in Zion. Okay. All right. Similar elements to what we see at the beginning of the chapter, right? There is an anticipation of battle in verses 9 through 10. There is a moment of decision, as in God giving a verdict on the nations in verses uh, 12 through 14. There are cataclysmic signs, the sun and the moon and the stars, Heavens and earth tremble, but in the, God is a refuge for his people in that day. And then Jerusalem being holy. There's blessing described in verse 18. Judgment described particularly now on Egypt in verse 19, in contrast to Judah being inhabited. And in verse 21, there is at least the Nazbia's vengeance. I think the King James has cleansing. Uh, there's probably some overlap in those two words. There's an idea of a repayment for blood that has been shed that then leads to a cleansing uh, because God dwells among his people in Zion. So, um, any thoughts on this section? How it relates to the previous section, the when question, and then moving toward the what does it have to do with us question. 
I think it's important for us to read these passages in their context because it's easy for us to jump immediately to what other places in Scripture does this sound like and lose the force of what he's saying right here. That being said, there are significant parallels with what we see here and things that we might see in Isaiah or in Ezekiel or in some of the other minor prophets, I think things that we see in Revelation. So, if I were going to, I said I don't want to necessarily go verse by verse and phrase by phrase and say, well, this little phrase has to do with the end times, this little phrase has to do with right then. If I was going to, based on my best understanding of this chapter at the moment, say, what are we talking about? I would say 1 through 3 and then 9 through 21 are anticipating what's going to happen in the future. 4 through 8 are talking about a more immediate judgment on some of the nations surrounding the people of Israel. Um, again, there are people who want to see all of this as having happened and all, or all of this as not yet happening. Uh, I already gave the reasons for why I think it's, it's a mix of both. Um, it, I guess for me, although you can see it as poetic exaggeration to say the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness, the heavens and the earth tremble, that seems to be very closely associated with what we see in the end times in a different way than the sun is darkened by clouds of insects, which we saw in chapters 1 and 2 here of Joel. Like, you can say the sun is darkened and then have all these things that legitimately describe a, just a horde of bugs coming in and just devouring everything, right? That's different from saying the sun, moon, and the stars are darkened and the earth and the heaven tremble, I think, in association with sort of this worldwide judgment that God is put, putting on the nations. Again, there's people who will say this is something that has already taken place. At the very least, the vision that's held out in verse 17 and verse 21, where it says, I am God dwelling in Zion, Jerusalem, be holy, strangers will pass through no more, and the Lord dwells in Zion, all the stuff that's happening in verses 18 through 20, Again, you know, some of the things we talked about before, I feel like it's hard to reconcile that optimistic picture of a glorious future for the people of Israel in light of what has happened since the days of Joel up to the present time. In other words, if you have invasion by Assyria and by Babylon and by Rome and by various Arabic nations and the events that happened around World War II and all of that, that doesn't seem to square with this idea that Jerusalem be holy, strangers pass through no more, God dwells with his people ongoingly. Right? But, going back to the more immediate point, and kind of going to the question of how do the nations know what was being said here, what was the response that Joel was driving for? I think it's really easy for us to get stuck on the when does all this happen. But the relevance of the when does this happen is if we say this is so far in the future, it has nothing to do with me right now, then it would be really easy for us to say, I'm going to ignore this message, right? So if there's someone who's a Philistine who says, and I don't know that the Philistines were probably sitting there and saying, oh, based on all these other passages of the Bible, of the Old Testament that we are aware of, we think that this is going to happen 500 years in the future, so we don't need to repent. I don't think they were probably doing that. I think the bigger question is whether they heard the message at all. But if they heard the message, what was 
Joel's point in giving this message to the people at that time? What is Joel's point of giving this warning knowing that later nations are going to see it? What takeaway are we supposed to have from Joel 3? What, what's that? Repentance, because if we do what, what will God do? If we do what toward God's people? Yeah, I mean, if, if we are the occasion of God's people being scattered, being killed, being sold into slavery, being treated like nothing, we should not think that we are in a secure position, right? Norma, you're going to say something? Yes. Yeah. So if we are among the nations who are opposed to God, we should anticipate being under that judgment. Now, jumping to the New Testament, the hope of the gospel is that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you turn to Jesus in faith, you can become a son of Abraham, an heir of God's promises, and find salvation. That's the hopeful side of things. The sobering part of things is, to the extent that we get this attitude of, well, God's people turn away from God so they deserved anything bad that happened to them, that's a really dangerous attitude to have in light of this passage. Because this passage is saying, Essentially, those who participate in the destruction of God's people, God's going to call them into account. The reason I think this is relevant for us today in the church is that there are people who will say the church has superseded and replaced Israel and God's done with them, which lends itself very nicely to an attitude of, so anything that happens to them, we don't have to care about because God doesn't care about them anymore. God's thing is the church now. We can, I think, and must, as we look at Scripture, see both a present work of God through the local church and the church, broadly speaking, based on what we see in the New Testament, and a future anticipation that God is going to hold nations into account for their response to His people Israel. Now, does that translate to sort of the Zionist vision that present-day political Israel is the same as what we see here? Does that mean that our foreign policy toward Israel is the basis on which God will judge us? Those are much more complicated questions perhaps to discuss another time. But at the very least, God is not done with Israel and our response to what God is doing and all of that is an opportunity for reflection, for repentance, for looking to Jesus for hope and salvation, but also not taking lightly the actions that we do in light of what Joel is saying. People in Joel's day, we're going to worship idols, everything is great, uh, things are falling apart and disaster around us, not a big deal. Joel says, this is the start, it's going to get worse if you don't turn away from it. Well that, or even immediately for them, you think this locust plague is bad if it keeps happening over and over and over again, if it escalates to foreign nations coming in and attacking you, like all of those sorts of things should not be taken lightly. And so, you know, a parallel application for us in our day is 
when we see disasters happening, our job is not to say this happened because those people were so bad and I'm so good. Our response should be, I should likewise repent because these are warnings. Perhaps to them, perhaps to me, but these are warnings we should pay attention. Turn to God and God has revealed that He is a God who is compassionate and gracious when people repent and that He is going to keep His word no matter how many generations or centuries it is afterwards. So, All right, let's wrap up there. Father, thank you for these truths. I pray that you'd help us to consider them, to see your great love and mercy and compassion, but to see your holy righteous wrath and that we should not take any of these things lightly and that uh, we should learn from them even today in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.